So tonight's, tonight's class is titled Garden of Amuna Sukkah. How much of me has to be in it? It's a question that's asked in the Talmud. How much of you has to be in the sukkah to be able to eat the sukkah? For example, for those of you like me who come from New York, you will know that there is the fire escape along the side of the building. And many times they have like right out of the window, they'll have the fire escape. If it's only one person and he doesn't get into it, he sticks out his head and how much of his body? That's the question. So you don't have to be entirely in the sukkah. Halachically, we'll soon talk about that. But how much of you does have to be in the sukkah? The Gemara gives an answer. How much of your body needs to be in the sukkah in order to be called being in the sukkah? So if you have, you're, you're inside the house and the sukkah is right out your window and you stick your head and your body into the sukkah, even though your feet are still inside, is that okay or not okay? Or do you have to climb out the window into the sukkah, so forth and so on, okay? So that's where the topic comes from, the title comes from, how much of me has to be in the sukkah? Why did I pick this title and why are we going to talk about this? Is because we're going to deal with it on a spiritual level. So let's first talk about what the sukkah has to do with the Garden of Faith, okay? The Garden of Amuna, in a certain, uh, in, I'm just uh, the, well, let's back up a second. This sukkah has a couple of themes, and uh, in this week's email that's going to go out tonight, in my article, you're going to see how the three themes are really connected. But one of the major themes of sukkah is faith. Why is it faith? Because the sukkah is actually a commemoration, a celebration of how we traveled in the desert when we left Egypt. Now, there's uh, different opinions. If the sukkah actually it says, the verse says, Ki shafti, you sat us in the sukkah. As children, you definitely all learned that the reason why we sit in the sukkah is to remember the clouds of glory that protected us and that was there for glory in the desert. But the whole concept of the Sukkot is our traveling in the desert. Now the prophet tells us, the verse says, Lech tech acharai bamidbar. God very belovingly talks about how the Jewish people with simple faith followed him into the desert. So here you're talking about a bunch of people that were slaves, right? We're talking about about 3 million people, 600,000 males from 20 to the age of 60. And they were slaves in Egypt. Egypt was a very civilized country in the sense of, I don't mean civilized as in morality, but as in civilization, it was not a third world country. It was the world power. There they had food, there they had shelter. And all of a sudden they're leaving into the desert. And what are they leaving with? They're leaving with their unbaked bread, right? That's why we eat matzah. They didn't have time to bake the bread and they left. Families, children, spouses, they're just walking into the desert. And the prophet talks about that that was an amazing act of faith. Where are you going to be provided from? Who's going to protect you? They obviously were not at all men of war. They were, at that time, slaves. So who was going to promise them, who was going to protect them, or any of the such? So therefore we say, How you followed me into the desert was an action of faith. It was an act of faith. With that being the case, so we're going to look at Sukkot as a moment and a gateway for the Jewish people to emunah, to their faith in Hashem. And now let's re-ask the question. 
how much of me has to be in the sukkah. Only that now we're asking the question about how much of me, the definition of the word me we'll soon see, how much of me needs to be absorbed in my faith. And when I say faith here, I don't mean faith as we always talk here. I don't mean faith as the Jewish religion. I mean faith as I have faith in God. It's going to be okay. Let's talk about the interesting halacha of the sukkah. Or in the best case scenario, and this is what we try to do, the best case scenario, we need to be entirely into the sukkah. Sukkah is one of the two mitzvot, which doesn't belong to any specific organ of our body, but we walk entirely into the mitzvah. What is the second mitzvah? Mikvah. So the two mitzvahs where, like learning, you learn with your head. Um, tefillin, you put with your hands. Going to shul, you go with your feet. What is the mitzvah that encompasses your entire body? You walk into the mitzvah is the sukkah and the mikvah. The mikvah, when you go to the mikvah, if any part of you, even one strand of hair that's connected to your head, is outside of the water, it didn't submerge into the water, then the entire mikvah was not a kosher mikvah. Halachically, you did not go to the mikvah. Now, concerning the sukkah, in best scenario, we do it the same way. You walk entirely into the sukkah. So when we ask how much of you, of me, has to be in the sukkah, we're talking about in a case where it wasn't entirely, what is the minimal amount, and we call that bidi avad. Bidi avad means if it happened this way, do you have to repeat it, or, do you, or is it okay the way it is? So again, lechatchila, I'm going to talk about this in the metaphorical level of emunah. Lechatchila, you need to be completely submerged from the hair on top of your head till your toenails. You've got to be completely submerged inside the sukkah. But bidi evet, in a case where you didn't, or you can't, for whatever reason, how much is the minimum amount of you that needs to be in the sukkah? And the halacha is, roishoi veruboi. Roishoi, your head, veruboi, and most, majority of your body. So if your head and most of you is in the sukkah, even though part of you is not in the sukkah, halachically, that is okay, and you did the mitzvah of the sukkah. Now, if the sukkah represents faith, which is how we're using it in this shiur, what would that mean? What would that mean to us in our service to Hashem of Emunah? So what I'm going to suggest here, I am actually borrowing from what Tanya talks about in love and fear of God. When it comes to a tzaddik, we refer to a tzaddik's life as three things. Love, fear, and faith. Ava, Yira, and Amuna. So I'm going to connect what I've learned about Ava and Yira, loving Hashem, to the mitzvah of Amuna. Now, when I uh, was learning the fifth Lubavitcher Rebbe's letters about Amuna, one of the things he says there is that Amuna and Bitachon is something that you have to consistently rejuvenate. It's not something that I learned it, I learned it well, I understand it, I have a munah, and that's it. It's going to, from here on, I just have to make it grow. No. A munah is one of those things that you have to keep on renewing it, because if not, it leaves you. And we're going to soon see what the word leaves you mean. I don't actually mean leaves you as gone, but rather 
more as concealed. It'll go back into your inner dimensions and you won't feel it in your mind and heart on the conscious level. So when we talk about emunah, it's something that's not, I did it once, I got my degree in it, the degree's hanging on the wall, and that's it. I have emunah, done. No, emunah happens over and over again. The Rebbe talks about the concept of emunah that if you read the verse, when it talks about the sabbatical year and the jubilee year, it talks about, and you will ask, that if we will not grow the field and we will not work the field, then how are we going to provide? And the Rebbe asks an interesting question there. The Rebbe says, one second, where were you seven years ago? Been there, done that. You saw that God already protected you seven years ago. And like the verse says, that he will give you produce in one year that will last three years. Or two years, you know, a little bit of the first year, the sixth year, a little bit of the eighth year, all the halachot involved. But the question over here is, you were already there. You saw it happen. Why are you asking the question again? And here the Rebbe also talks about that concept. That on a lower level of emunah, you have to keep on renewing it and refreshing it. And let's talk about on a practical level. We go through this every single time. God forbid we have to go through a medical test. We had the medical test last time. It all worked out. But we're nervous again. We have to rebuild up the emunah. What happens when last year, last month, uh, you know, you made the, thank God you met the, what you had to meet for the, uh, for the mortgage and your bills. And then this month, again, you're worried. So we see it practically, what the Rebbe is talking about in that verse. That after the first uh, time you went through a sabbatical year in your life as a, as a person who was responsible to provide for a family, it worked out okay. But the next sabbatical year, you're worried again, Hashem. If I am a person of the field, and this is how I earn a living, and you're telling me for a whole year I can't touch my field, I can't do anything, so again I'm stuck with the same question. I'm worried, how am I going to provide? The fact that you saw it worked out okay last time doesn't help you for this time. Because emunah is not something that you work up once, and that's it, it's there. Emunah is something you have to keep on working up. So now that we understand that, let's go through this process of the lichatchila. You should be entirely in the sukkah, in your faith, without any doubts, without any worries. And what is it bidyeved? That if you can't be entirely in your sukkah, at least the minimum has to be your head and most of your body needs to be in the sukkah, which again, in this conversation, we're using it metaphorically for the concept of faith. What it means, that you have to entirely be in your sukkah, we understand. What it means is that from the tip of your head down to the bottom of your feet. In Kabbalah, the bottom of your feet, your heels, are called death. Why are they called death? Because they have the minimal amount of life to it, sensitivity. You ever want to test the waters? What do you use? You use the sole of your feet. So the lechatchila, what we're expecting of each and every one of us is that if the sukkah over here represents faith, you should be entirely in your sukkah. Your mind, your heart, your hands, all the way down to the soles of your feet. All of it should be completely submerged in absolute certainty 
that he has provided, he does provide, and he will provide. That's what the most opportune situation is. And that's the way tzaddikim live their lives. Righteous people, when we talk about that they have Ava, Yira, and Amuna, love, fear, and faith, that's exactly what we're talking about. From the top of their being to the bottom of their being, spiritually, physically, they're consistently, consistently, completely submerged in their faith. Worry doesn't exist. Struggle to fight the war of God always exists. But worry does not exist. I want to share with you something. I think about this often. You know, people that are in position of hearing other people's situations and trying to help them. So humans are humans. So it's not just you try to help, but later it affects you. You start worrying, you're worrying, how is he doing? How is she doing? Are they going to be okay? And then I start thinking to myself, how many people turn to me? Limited amount. The Rebbe had two and a half sacks of mail daily. Now, as the Rebbe himself, which I personally heard, has publicly complained that there are what we call Tzorus Hasidim. They write to the Rebbe when things are tough. But they don't even write back to the Rebbe that everything worked out okay. And, and I've heard the Rebbe complain about this myself. So you can imagine that those two and a half sacks of mail wasn't majority good news. And you ask yourself, a man as sensitive as the Rebbe to other people's sorrows, a man who was able to cry when a man, it's a story that happened with a certain taxi driver, a story for a different time, that he was standing inside by the office by the Rebbe, he was sitting there talking to the Rebbe, about his whole problem. He left Russia. He thought he was going to come to America and everything's going to be beautiful. He ended up sleeping in the train station. And he looked up. He saw the Rebbe crying. And he, he said, I don't know get this. The man doesn't know me. He probably hears this story over and over and over again. And he's sitting here crying because of what, what's going on with me. So you ask yourself, two and a half sacks of mail of such stories, how does the Rebbe go on? How did the Rebbe always have a smile on his face? The Rebbe's signature was always a joy. In the hardest times, the Rebbe standing there making with his hand, everyone should sing. I mean, you can see it. It's all on the internet. You can see um, clips and everything. The answer, more than anything, is the Rebbe's faith in God. The Rebbe's faith in Torah. The Rebbe's faith in his fellow Jew. Faith is what allows you to read the most horrific situations, do your best to help, and then be okay. Be okay with the situation. So for a tzaddik, the simple scenario of being in the sukkah, i.e. faith, is the totality of his being, from the head till the heels. But now the question is, B'dievet. In a situation where we cannot get ourselves to just have this automatic, habitual, I'm going to use the word lifeless because of what I told you the Zohar says about the heels. And what I mean by lifeless is that it is so ingrained within you that just habitually 
you automatically have faith. Not that you sat and contemplated and prayed and opened up your mind and your heart, but you're so in totality, in faith, in God, that habitually, even your lifeless soles of your feet, they automatically turn to mechanically having faith. Not every one of us can do it. I would have professed to you that I'm on the list that could do it. So therefore, what is the minimal amount demanded of us to have a munah? And that's what this class is really all about tonight. So I told you the Gemara's answer is, what's the halacha? The law is that the minimal amount to be in the sukkah is roishoi veruboi. Your head and most of your body. Let's talk about this. What does roishoi veruboi, your head and most of your body, mean in this scenario? So first of all, let's start with something I may have shared with you in the past. That Maimonides, when he talks about the laws of going to war, we had it a couple of weeks ago, right, in the portion of Deuteronomy. It is prohibited for someone, a Jewish man who's going out into war with the army to protect the Jewish people, it is prohibited for him to be afraid. Now the question is, <laughs> what was that supposed to mean, prohibited for him to be afraid? So Maimonides, in his Book of Laws, describes it in the technical terms, legal terms. And that is that the prohibition is to allow your mind to stray to thoughts of defeat, getting killed. You're just not allowed to entertain those thoughts. And I shared this once with you before. If you read the previous Rebbe's diary, when he was arrested in 1927, you'll see over there he writes how he's sitting and thinking about what happened in his home, how his mother reacted, he started crying when they woke her up, his wife, his daughters. He started thinking about his son-in-laws. He started thinking about what Chassidim are probably doing right now as the news is spreading like wildfire. And he starts, and then he writes over there, but I cannot think like this right now because I must be strong for what faces me. That one sentence is exactly what Maimonides is talking about. So yes, the person out in the, in the, in the battlefield, his mind may begin to think, What's happening? What happens if I get killed? Who's going to take care of my wife, my kids, my this, my that? And then he immediately has to say, but I cannot think like this right now. But then Maimonides has a very interesting last point to this law. True. True that the actual work, the legality, is talking to the brain. But the sin is when it leaks into the heart. So let's say a person does, for a moment, his mind goes astray, and he starts thinking as he's hiding there in the bunker, as the bombs are flying over, he all of a sudden starts thinking about his wife and his kids and what would happen, and yada, yada. He didn't do the sin. But if those thoughts went so far that now he's feeling within his heart fear, that was the sin. So even though the, let's use the word, the action verb of this mitzvah is to the brain, the noun is the heart. So we're telling your brain what it must do and what it may not do, but 
when will it be considered a sin is when it leaks into the heart. So as long as it was contained in the brain, even though Maimonides says you're playing with fire, don't do that, but that isn't a sin yet. But if you play with it in your brain to the point where now it got to your heart and you're seriously emotionally afraid, now we're dealing with an anxiety, that already is a sin. Because the verse tells us you're not allowed to be afraid when you go out to war. Let's, <coughs> excuse me, let's take this to Emunah. Let's take it to the Roishoi Veruboi. So the Roishoi, the head, has to be in the sukkah. But the head is not enough. Because many of us intellectually have faith. Emotionally, we're not doing that well. Many of us can stand up and give an amazing lecture on faith intellectually. Yet emotionally, they're not doing that well. Emotionally, they're dealing with real issues in faith. Real issues where they don't sleep at night. Real issues where they're worried. Real issues where there's anxieties. So we clearly understand that the minimal amount of the sukkah, again, in our lecture tonight, that's all about faith. The minimal amount of how much faith you have to have cannot be just your head. Yes, the head is where it takes place. But if it's just the head, then it's not a munah. If you have all the right answers in your head, that's not a munah. So if a munah was an intellectual pursuit, then it would be enough just to stick your head in the, in the sukkah. But if a munah is not about the head, a munah is about the heart, we're dealing now on a different level. Let's take it a step further. In the world of Hasidus, in chapter 3 in Tanya, he introduces the three intellects and the seven emotions. The three intellects, which is why physically we have three lobes to our brain, right, left, and the stem, represents wisdom, understanding, and knowledge. Wisdom is that all-encompassing general point, which is the nucleus of the entire intellect. It's where you see everything and nothing at the same moment. That's why in the world of Kabbalah, wisdom is always called father. Because in the process of reproduction, the father passes the sperm, which has the entire genetic ladder, the entire DNA ladder in it. But nevertheless, there's nothing there. Everything's there, but nothing's there. That's how it works in Chachma. In Chachma, it's that moment where the light goes off in your head, but you don't have the answer. You have the answer, but you don't have the answer because now you have to unpack and decipher what you just received. So you already received it, but you have nothing. Chachma. It's that drip from the nefesh hamisakelet, from the intellectual soul, the soul that gives the power of the thoughts, the intellect, not thoughts, it drips down, you have everything but nothing. You now need to decipher, you need to 
go ahead and open it up and take everything out, which is Bina. Bina is the left lobe of the brain, it's the methodological, it's the analytical, it's the accountant, the lawyer, while the right side is the artist. One without the other, you're not going to get anywhere. But here is why I'm sharing this with you. Because of the Rosho Verubo factor. See, within the head itself, there's a Rosho Verubo. Within the head itself, there's the front two lobes, which represent the head, and then there's the brain stem, which now represents already the Rubo, the body. You see, in the world of Kabbalah, dot translates in English as knowledge. We refer to knowledge as a compilation of data. He's a very knowledgeable person. He knows a lot. That's not what it means in the world of Kabbalah. In the first time in the Torah where you find the word dat, it's va'adam yada et chava, and Adam knew Eve, and what it meant is consummation. So what dat really means is what we're talking about right now, taking it from the rosho and putting it into the rubo. Taking it from the intellect and bringing it down into the emotions. Now there's a total different approach in that. I serve as a chaplain in the North Miami Police and today we had a meeting and the chief was talking with us and he was explaining this concept, you know, what, what role we can play for the officers and how important it is. And one of the things he was sharing with us was that when you deal with a horrific case, the police are trained to go into mechanical mode, which basically means your emotions go into shutdown and you're behaving mechanically. Because if you were to bring your emotions into the situation, it creates a huge issue. You won't be able to do your job. And he told us a personal experience that he had where he came, he was called on a scene because of a, a problem between a boyfriend and a girlfriend and uh, whatever it was, and all of a sudden the major issue was that the baby was missing and they found the baby you know, and the boyfriend, whatever. I don't have to get into all the details, I'm sure you unfortunately can understand what I'm talking about. And he said, so yes, the first thing as a police officer, you shut down. Emotionally, immediately shut down and just mechanically go through procedures. You arrest him, you do what you have to, everything is done. But then you come home and you turn back on the part of you that you shut off. And that becomes a problem. You see, many of us do that with our religion. We do the same thing. We intellectualize, we actualize in behavioral patterns. We know what we have to do, but we shut off the emotions. We do that very often when we talk about faith. Because one of the problems you have with learning about faith is that you're normally learning it in a protected environment. So we're sitting here in a protected sanctuary. Right now, banks are closed. Right now, everything is beautiful. And we're talking about this. And then tomorrow, you go back into life, and the bank calls you up, and all of a sudden, what happens? I shared with you one of my favorite scenes in Finding Nemo. Remember when they go down the blue light, the blue light, and the Dora and Marlin, oh, the good feeling, good feeling, and all of a sudden, the whole fish lights up and they see teeth, and all of a sudden you hear Dora say, good feeling gone. Well, that's what happens. Right now we're here in the shul, we're talking about a munah, good feeling, the blue light. We all have faith. Tomorrow morning, when life 
all of a sudden opens up its jaws and the banks back up and everything else is going on in life, all of a sudden, good feeling gone. So when we talk about having faith, you can never say that the halacha should be or could be, rosho is enough. The brain, just intellectualize. Intellectually have faith that it's going to be okay. But emotionally be a wreck. What kind of faith is that? So when we talk about what is the minimal amount, it's got to be more than just the rosho. Within the brain itself, that means it's more than just the front two lobes. Where is your brain stem? Where is your dot? Where is the consummation between your heart and your mind, your mind and your heart? And then, it's not just the brain and the heart. Rosho Virubo has got to go further than your heart. Because if you just draw a line right under your heart and measure from there to the top of your head and from there down, you're still not dealing with Rosho Virubo. Because even your heart isn't enough. Think about it this way. Obviously, when I'm preparing the class, I told you, I drive to be practical. It's not going to help any of us if we all of a sudden go abstract here. So I'm thinking of, you know, what does it mean your brain and your heart isn't enough? So let's talk about this. How many times did you have an argument with either a spouse or a friend? And then you went to your own little corner, you know, getting over it. And in your mind, you're thinking over what happened. And all of a sudden, you're realizing, you know, let me go apologize. And it's not just in your brain. You're actually working up in your heart that feeling that you really want to apologize and you want to make up and then, you know. And then, with not just in your mind intellectually, but with your heart emotionally, you're now going to apologize. And the minute there's eye contact, you can't get yourself to apologize. I don't know if I'm the only schizophrenic in the room, but do any of you relate to what I'm talking about? You're there intellectually, you're there emotionally, but then when it comes to doing it, and you're walking into the house, you've been going over it already 10 times, exactly how you're gonna say it, and what you get, eh, 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 it gets stuck right there, right in your throat, it gets stuck. Rosho Virubo is not just the brain and the heart. Rosho Virubo is the brain, the heart, and action. And yet, it allows, it allows, Rosho Verubo does allow for what I'm going to suggest to you tonight is called lurking doubt. What do I mean by lurking doubt? Lurking doubt to me would mean that you know Right behind the horizon, right behind the horizon, just past the horizon. If you leave go for a second, you're going to be overcome again by the anxiety and everything. Let me quote to you a verse from King David concerning his sin. And my sin is right against me, right across from me, always. And our sages say, on one hand, tamid is always, it's always there. But on the other hand, negdi merachok, from a distance. So you always have to have your past sins 
somewhere right behind the horizon to remind you. Don't get too, don't get too sure of yourself. Stand guard. But on the other hand, if it's right smack in your face, then you can't move, you can't do anything. So you have this wonderful paradox of tamid, but negdi merachok. It's, it's, it is there, but lurking just behind the horizon. Just beyond where my conscious mind reaches. I would suggest to you that if we're going to play with this as we are tonight, that the sukkah is faith, and Rosh Barubo is your mind, your heart, and more, <laughs> has to be more. My uncle, one of his favorite sayings, he would always tell me is that the path to purgatory is paid with good intentions. So if it's just the mind and the heart, that's still good intentions. What changes an intention into an actuality is when it passes the heart into actuality. So Rosh Hashanah is not good intentions. It's beyond good intentions. But for wishing it tonight, so if Rosh Hashanah is your mind, intellectually, you work it over again and again. Yesterday's faith is not good enough for today's doubts and challenges. Seven years ago, God showed you you have nothing what to worry about with letting the land go fallow. And yet, seven years later, you're back with the same question. How, God? How am I supposed to provide? If towards the end of the sixth year, I can't work. The seventh year, I can't work. And the beginning of the eighth year, which is the produce of the seventh year, I can't work. So how am I supposed to survive? What do you mean? Where were you seven years ago? No, you got to work it again. And you got to work it intellectually. You got to have concrete answers to your doubts. Chovot HaLevavot is not just a one-word book when it comes to the gateway of trust. It doesn't just say, don't worry. It goes on. He goes on. He gives the brain what to think about. The Rosho, that's where the action verb is. But thinking about it in a way where you shut down your emotions, when it comes to faith, that won't work. Because the midst of having faith is not to pass the test of writing down the right answers. It's in your heart. So it's got to be from your brain to your heart. And then when it gets to the heart, that's not enough either. Because we're still stuck in good intentions. Good intentions isn't the road to heaven. So you got to also have rubos. It's got to go beyond the mind and the heart. If in your mind, you regret what you did, you rebuild up a love for the person you had a fight with, and you committed to apologize and make up for it, then you have to actually do it. But if that be the case, then that's the entire being. So why does it say Rosh Hashanah? What I'm suggesting here is that when it says Rosh Hashanah, it's allowing for a lurking doubt beyond the horizon of your consciousness. And you know it's there. And you know if you ever drop your God, it's going to sneak up on you. I'm, what I am doing here tonight is a little bit unusual. Because usual, I'll learn a mimer from the Rebbe or a chapter in Tanya or whatever it is and bring that to the class and quote to you directly. And when I say that, I don't use the words I'm suggesting. <laughs> if the Rebbe said it, it's not a suggestion. If the Alter Rebbe said it or if it comes from anywhere in the Torah, it's not a suggestion, it's a fact. You notice that I use the word a lot today, suggestion. 
what I'm sharing with you is just built on things I learned, but I cannot tell you that I actually saw it spelt out this way. I am a little bit taking liberties to define, based on what I learned in Tanya, what the word Rosho means, what the word Rubo means, and what it comes to exclude. Rosho Verubo is telling me that your brain and most of you, which would include your heart and beyond, is, has to be in the sukkah. But the fact that it says Rosho Verubo means that it doesn't have to be your entirety. So I'm trying to suggest tonight, if it doesn't demand your entirety, but it does demand Rosho Verubo, which is your brain, your heart, and beyond, then what is it allowing for not to be in the sukkah? And yet you're considered in the sukkah. My personal answer here is that it allows for the lurking doubt. The lurking doubt, which is just beyond the horizon of your consciousness. You feel it. You feel that the minute you're slipping and giving way, it's creeping up. But the minute you stop it, you know that it's there. It's merachok. And unfortunately, it's tamid merachok in the world of a benini, the continuous struggle between the two souls. And yet, I think that what the halacha is telling us is that's okay. Because the benini is not, it's not mandatory, nor is it even capable, according to Alter Rebbe Tanya, for the benini, the intermediate, to eradicate the evil inclination, the animalistic soul. But he can always keep it at bay. I'm going to share with you what I mean by that. I heard this example from one of my teachers, Rabbi Zalman Guppen, concerning a different thing. It's a metaphor his father gave him, and he used it for a different concept. I'm going to borrow the story for the concept that we're using here. I mentioned on the holidays that, you know, there's a South Beach diet, and there's the Atkins diet, and the this diet, and the that diet. And I told them that there's also a Kabbalah diet. It then has its roots in the story of the Talmud when it came to the destruction of the temple with the, uh, with the general who became the emperor, and he had one shoe on, one shoe off. He couldn't. Basically, what the diet boils down to is as follows. Food produces meat cells. Pleasure produces fat cells. They're two separate things. You with me? So if you eat meat, that produces meat cells. If you're allowing yourself to indulge in the pleasure of your taste buds, you're producing fatty cells. Bear that in mind, and now I share with you this story. This person, what he, had, what he did for a living was he used to let his cows graze, or whatever it was, his lambs graze, and then he would sell them. And now you have a problem. Because if he doesn't feed them well, so everyone's going to say, Yankel is animals he shouldn't buy. They don't really have that much meat. If he would let them graze again and again, they would have pleasure. And now everyone's going to start talking about, oh, don't buy Yankel's animals. They're very fatty. You know, we want a steak that has a lot of meat, but we also want it to be lean on the fatty side. So he didn't, what's he supposed to do? Don't let it eat, there's no meat. Do let it eat, there's also fat. What do you do? So he came up with an amazing idea. He got a lion, or whatever it was, an animal, a predator. He put it in a cage at the end of his field. He used to feed it there. 
But what happened was that the animals that he owned didn't realize that it's locked in a cage and it can't get them. So on one hand, they would eat. On the other hand, they would never be able to indulge in their eating because they're always worried. One eye is always looking at where's the predator, where's the predator. The reason why this metaphor is given is for a whole different concept, which is about that if we don't indulge in the physical world, we're just going to separate ourselves from it, then we're not going to be able to accomplish what a Jew needs to accomplish in this world. But if we indulge in this world, then we're going to get stained by the physicality of this world, and we're going to lose our spiritual sensitivity. So what we need to do is have the fear of God always there, and this way we will be involving ourselves in the physical world, doing what a Jew has to do, but we won't allow ourselves to get fat because we're always with one eye looking at heaven with the fear of God. That's what that story is about. I'm using it here on a different level. Because what I'm talking about here is that in the distance, there's always that lurking predator called doubt, uncertainty, all that comes with the lack of faith. But on the conscious screen, what we have is faith. And we know that the minute we don't keep on occupying our conscious screen with our mind continuously learning about God and how God controls every single detail of our life and the universe, and we don't just learn it, but we learn it with a meditative approach that our emotions should get involved and the emotions should lead us to action. We know that the minute we start slipping at our work, what lies lurking right beyond the horizon will be straight in our nose. I believe it was Pavarotti that once said, if I don't exercise my voice one day, my trainer can sense it. If I don't exercise my voice two days, I can sense it. And if I don't exercise my voice three days, Everyone can sense it. Now let's talk about the same thing with faith. When you know that as a Benini, lurking right beyond the horizon is doubt, anxiety, insecurity, uncertainty, then you realize that if you don't exercise your faith, if you don't think about God, and build up the certainty that God was there for you, God is here for you, and God will be there for you. So if you don't exercise it one day, then God will know. He will sense it. If you don't exercise it two days, you will know. You'll start feeling the pains of anxiety. If you don't exercise it three days, everyone will know. Thus, what I'm suggesting here is that the minimal amount has to be rosho verubo. Your brain needs to be submerged into the teachings of the sukkah, really understanding that faith, your heart has to be consummating with your brain that what you learn and you know is not an intellectual pursuit, but you take the moment to let it linger on your tongue, bring it down into your chest, feel it in your heart, and then go beyond good intentions. 
And nevertheless, if you come to me and you say, Rabbi, you know, I I've been working with my faith. I've been learning Chassidus. I've been learning Torah. And not only just learning it, I've been actually letting linger in my mind, in my tongue, in my, my heart. And, and I get myself to act based on this faith. But I must tell you, Rabbi, that I'm always feeling right there's something that I'm right there to slip into doubt and go again into worries and anxiety. I'll tell you, okay, that's kosher. That's kosher. That's Rosh Hashanah. You did the mitzvah of Sukkah. And use that lurking doubt to keep on like Pavarati. Don't stop exercising for a day. It will be noticeable. So as long as you're working the brain, working the heart, and getting beyond good intentions, Rosh Hashanah in the Sukkah, you did the mitzvah. That will be considered faith. That's all for tonight, guys.